0: Good morning. morning. Please take out your Bibles and turn in them to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 21 this morning. You can find it on page 896 in the Pew Bible in front of you. John 10, 11 through 21, page 896. We are finally to verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Why are you the good shepherd, Jesus the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I, that's our sermon. The goodness of Christ revealed most clearly in the death of Christ. Remember, John is very clear in this book. He tells us his purpose. Why is he writing? What's, what's his goal? Chapter 20, verse 31. I write these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But the whole purpose and goal of this book is life. And John is claiming that life is found in Christ and through Christ alone. Because that's what Christ himself claims. We saw it in verse 10 last week. Look at it again. Quite clear. Why did you come, Jesus? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We'll see it in chapter 17, verse 3. Well, what really is life, Jesus? This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. We saw it in verse 9 last week. Okay, Jesus, if life is knowing God, how can we, how do we get to God? I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And so Christ claims very clearly, but as we've been seeing, very controversially, to be the only way to God. The the God who, knowing is life itself, And thus, in bringing us to God, Christ is bringing us to abundant life. Isn't that what we all want? Abundant, overflowing, joyful, peaceful, satisfied, contented life. Sounds pretty good. And yet, how few of us experience abundant, overflowing, joyful, peaceful, satisfied, contented life why is that? I've shared a couple of times already the line I read in a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones, a book Lydia gave me, one of the things that she left behind that I come back to again and again. But this this quote from Lloyd-Jones in a book on assurance has both really helped me and has both really messed with me. And Lloyd-Jones says this, The more I try to live this Christian life and the more I read the New Testament, the more convinced I am that the trouble with most of us is that we have never truly realized what it is to be a Christian. If we only understood what a Christian really is and the position in which he is placed, if only we realized the privilege and the possibilities of that position and above everything, the glorious destiny of everyone who is truly a Christian, then our entire outlook would be completely changed. I mean, I, quite honestly, many of us have never truly realized what it is to be a Christian. I often feel like I'm only just beginning to sort it out. Thus the struggle to truly experience the abundant life that Christ offers. We struggle to realize what it is to be a Christian, but taking it a step further, I think in large part we struggle to realize what it is to really be a Christian because we first struggle to realize who Christ truly is. And it has to start there. For Christ is Christianity. Christ claims to be life itself. Claims that we will find life all those abundant, peaceful, joyful, all those things. He claims we'll find those only in Him. Only in knowing Him. And while knowing Him is more than knowing about Him, it's not less. It starts with knowing about Him. And the more that we know about Him... By the grace of God, the more we will grow to love Him. We look at Him, we learn Him for the purpose of loving Him. And so, my whole job, my only hope as a pastor is to hold up Christ to you, to beg and beseech and encourage you to look at Christ, to look more, to look longer, more deeply, more intentionally, more consistently, and then pray and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the beauty and glory and goodness of this christ remember last week we become what we behold we look like what we look at what are you giving your attention and your affection to what are you filling your time and your mind with as we asked last week following spurgeon all right you believe in christ you believe things about christ great here was spurgeon's question is christ precious to you because if he's not well then you don't know him If you are merely mildly interested in Jesus, then you have not yet truly met Jesus. Is Christ precious to you? If by the grace of God you can better see and understand him as the good shepherd, he will be precious to you. Here is his preciousness in this text. Here is his beauty, his infinite value. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Again, that's the sermon. That's where you will find abundant life. So our our goal simply this morning is three points to help us better understand Christ and hopefully better love Christ. I had four points, but I decided to spare you yesterday afternoon. Only three. Point number one, we're just going to start with the Good Shepherd. Who is he? His, His identity. Then point number two, we want to focus primarily on the death of the Good Shepherd. Remember the repetition in this text. We'll see it again. Then, in what was going to be point three, let me provocatively encourage you to come next week, what I wanted to do in point three was I wanted to draw your attention to the grace of the good shepherd. If there's nothing more important than knowing God, there's nothing more important than knowing the grace of God. And quite beautifully and brilliantly, we have all five of the doctrines of grace in John chapter 10. Grace is everything. The Christian faith is a religion of grace. Our only hope is grace. Abundant life is only found through grace. And John chapter 10 is simply one of the clearest explanations and expositions of God's sovereign grace. If you are still struggling to value Christ, a consideration of the absolute sovereign grace of Christ could help. And the doctrines of grace are a wonderful summary of the grace that is life. So, I'm going to take a whole sermon next week and walk you through the doctrines of grace from John chapter 10. We'll see the, the doctrines of grace of the Good Shepherd. Right, come, come next week. I think it'll be fun. Lord, Lord willing. But that makes point three this week. I mostly want to apply here at the end because we see Christ transition to talk about this as well. We're going to close with the church of the Good Shepherd. So, the person, the death, the church. It's the preciousness of the person is revealed in the death. And then it's the church of the person created by that death. So let's read our text and see what Jesus says here. Remember, this is the most important part. John chapter 10. I love this passage, so we're going to read the whole thing one more time. Verses 1 through 21. We'll focus on verses 11 through 21. But pay attention. This is God's word. This is living and active. This is the voice of the Good Shepherd. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? If you would, let's pause. Let's pray. Uh, Let's ask for God to help us in this time. Father, God of all grace and glory, God who reveals himself and speaks uh, to us through this word, we ask that you would do that now. We ask, as you have promised, that your word would not return to you void. We ask, as you have promised, that you would do your good work through your good word. Father, I cannot do that. Father, I am helpless apart from you. We pray that your spirit would work through your word. And we pray that that spirit would show us Jesus Christ. Show us that it is in Christ alone that our hope and that our life is found. Father, use these words and use my uh, meager attempts to proclaim these words to be a means uh, through which you grow in our hearts great affection for Jesus Christ. Father, show us Christ. Please work through your word. Make Christ precious to us through the preaching of your word. We ask now in his name. Amen. Point number one, the good shepherd. We start simply with identity. Our culture is currently correct in its emphasis on the importance of identity. It's just terribly incorrect on what that identity is or where that identity is found. This is an important question. How would you answer the question? Who are you? And how would you answer that question? Let me challenge you with this. You cannot correctly answer that question without first being able to answer the question, who is Christ? And here we see some really important information about this Christ. He is the good shepherd. This is who he is. Jesus has been both rebuking and revealing. This is our third week in this text, so we've set the context a couple of times. I won't take uh, a bunch of time on that this time. Christ has healed and saved the man born blind in chapter 9. The Pharisees have seen the healing of the man born blind, and they have chosen to blind themselves to seeing the glory and goodness and the identity of his healer, Jesus Christ. And so they then stubbornly cast the healed man out. The men, the Pharisees, who are supposed to be the good shepherds of Israel, have proven themselves, again, to be the bad and false shepherds. They are the thieves and robbers. They are the hired hands that Jesus is talking about in verse 12. So Jesus is rebuking the bad shepherds and then revealing himself as the one good shepherd. And so now we've seen the true shepherd compared to the false shepherds. We've seen the door, the only way in. Oh, now we get to the peak, the pinnacle. The true shepherd is the door of the sheep, is the good shepherd. And so Jesus is revealing himself to us through this wonderful metaphor, this picture. A shepherd caring for his sheep is supposed to teach us about how Christ, the shepherd of souls, cares for his people. Have you ever wondered why there are so many old, many shepherds in the Old Testament? It's just like everybody in the Old Testament is a shepherd. And why there's such a heavy emphasis on the shepherd theme. It starts almost right away. Abel in Genesis 4 verse 2 is a keeper of sheep. Abraham's large flocks are referenced a couple of times in Genesis 12 and 13. When we get back to Genesis after John, we'll see Jacob, Israel, the father of the nation of Israel. He was a shepherd, as was his son Joseph. Exodus 3, Moses is shepherding flocks when he meets God in the burning bush. David was a shepherd and on and on and on. Why so many shepherds? We read last week in Isaiah 40 verse 11, which remember we just started Isaiah. A wonderful introduction to the book of Isaiah this morning. Come to Sunday school. But last week we read Isaiah 40 verse 11. The prophecy of the Messiah to come. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs. In his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. That's why there are so many shepherds in the Old Testament. We just read Psalm 23, the most beloved of the many beloved Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd. God, Yahweh, is my shepherd. And so now, here in John chapter 10, we have Christ, who has already claimed in 546 that Moses writes about him. Who uh, John one forty five tells us that Moses and the law and the prophets, again the whole Old Testament, writes about him. Jesus is here claiming to be that good shepherd, the good shepherd of Psalm twenty three. Psalm twenty three is about Jesus. Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of all of that. All those shepherds in the Old Testament are there for this purpose. They are types and shadows pointing us to the true fulfillment of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. The shepherd that is Yahweh God himself. Christ says, I am Yahweh God himself. I am the shepherd of the sheep. All right, so listen, start with this. If you can understand this, point number two should floor you. I don't care how familiar you are with point number two. Fight against the apathy that familiarity breeds. Jesus has just claimed again to be God Almighty himself. Christianity claims to be a founded upon the most amazing thing that has ever happened. What would your answer be to the most amazing thing that has ever happened? The only answer is that God has become man. That's the most amazing thing that has ever happened. God, in all his infinite transcendence, in his glorious bigness and beauty, has become amazingly eminent and small and present. He has come here, physical, flesh. God has become man. If it's true, it's the most amazing and most important thing that has ever happened. If it's true, you should live your entire life around that one fact. Thursday night, Henry led us through Romans 11, which quotes Psalm 19. You probably know it. The the heavens, the skies declare the glory of God. And he had the children construct a little model of our solar system. You can still see it. It's up in there if you need a general idea of the size. We go from the sun, and he thankfully, wisely went to Pluto. Uh, When I was growing up, Pluto was a planet. I cannot accept the deplaneting of Pluto. Still a planet to me. But it was a good picture. The point of it was was to show us how big our solar system is. right? Compared to earth, compared to this church, compared to us, the solar system is huge. And the point was, the bigger the creation, the bigger the creator. The bigness and beauty of creation reveals to us the bigness and the beauty of the creator. And it actually only gets better. Compared to us, compared to earth, our solar system is huge. Huge compared to the universe, our solar system is basically nothing. The earth is basically nothing. We are nothing, it's just this one little system around this one little star. How many stars are there? We don't really know. The sun is one star, there are at least 100 billion stars. Can you imagine that number? You can't. There are at least 100 billion stars in. Our galaxy, how many galaxies are there? Look solar system, galaxy, universe. Uh, how many galaxies are there? We don't really know. Some estimate 100 million galaxies. So how many stars are there in the whole universe? Again, we don't know. Some estimate that there are 200 billion trillion stars. What does that number mean? 200 sextillion. <laughs> what does that number mean? No idea. I have no idea what that number means we cannot comprehend such numbers and the vastness of such space god can god created all of it why are there so many stars why so big psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of god it's because he is so big we cannot comprehend his bigness, his glory. Creation is so absurdly big and beautiful to reveal to us his transcendent bigness and beauty. And in claiming to be the Good Shepherd, Yahweh of Psalm 23, Jesus is claiming all of that. Jesus is claiming to be that God. Remember, he's the creator. He's claiming to be that big and that beautiful. I am the Good Shepherd. Again, what a big, Claim. It's either true or false. It's true or false. Just basic logic. Is he crazy or is he Christ? Is he liar or is he Lord? This Christ deserves our consideration. This Christ deserves our attention. What he wants you to see here is that there is none like him. There has never been anyone like this Christ. There has never been anyone to make claims like this Christ. Christ is our argument. Christ is our apologetic Why should you believe? Because of Christ. It's Christ that convinces. We believe the Bible because of the Jesus that we find in the Bible. If that sounds circular to you, it's not. As has been said before, it would take a Jesus to invent a Jesus. The the character and the person of Christ is so overwhelmingly brilliant and beautiful that it must be true. Spurgeon says on this text, there's, there's more in Jesus the good shepherd, than you can pack away in the metaphor of a shepherd. He's the good, the great, the chief shepherd, but he's much more. Emblems to set him forth may be multiplied as the drops of the morning, but the whole multitude will fail to reflect all his brightness. Creation is too small. Remember how big that creation we just talked about was? Creation is too small a frame in which to hang his Likeness. Human thought is too contracted, human speech too feeble to set him forth in full. He is inconceivably above our conceptions, unutterably above our utterances. This is the Christ that we claim. This is what Christ claims for himself. He is God himself in all his greatness and glory. He is Yahweh God, the good shepherd. Why did we just spend ten minutes talking about that? because of point number 2 because that's what makes point number 2 so astounding don't consider point don't forget point 1 as we consider point 2 good shepherd bigness grandness glory transcendence point 2 the death of the good shepherd god the good shepherd dies what we looked at this briefly last week remember if you're trying to figure out what a text is about One of the things that you're looking for is repetition. Repetition in Scripture reveals to us the point of a text. Look at the text again. Remember, five times. Look at verse 11. Let's read it again. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's one. Look at verse 15. I lay down my life for the sheep. That's two. Look at verse 17. I lay down my life. That's three. Look at verse 18. I lay it down. Keep reading verse 18 again. I lay it down. That's four and five. Jesus will not let us miss the main thing. And the main thing that he will not let us miss is his death. It's no accident that verse 11 follows verse 10. It's no accident that they, that I came that they may have life and have it abundantly is followed by the good shepherd dies for the sheep. In some way, the two are connected. In some way, the life of the sheep is bound up with the death of the shepherd. Look at verses 12 and 13. Here are the Pharisees again. Remember, it's not just the Pharisees. It's the Pharisees as representative of all false and bad shepherds, of all that draws away from Christ. This time they are the hired hands. And in contrast to the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, the hired hands lay down the life of the sheep for themselves. They flee, the text tells us, because they don't care anything for the sheep. A good shepherd fights. A good shepherd cares for the sheep. A good shepherd stays to protect the sheep at the risk of his own life. But think about it. Here's where the metaphor breaks down. And no metaphor is perfect. Think about it. In a real-life shepherd-sheep situation, a good shepherd willingly risks his life. But he has no desire to die. He has no intent to die, the point is not to die, the point is to live. Why? What happens if the shepherd dies? <laughs> the sheep die. Right? He's risking his life for the purpose of ending the life of the wolf and thus saving the life of the sheep. If the shepherd dies, the wolf now has free reign to feast on the sheep. All you can eat, lamb chops. Right? A-, a good shepherd has no desire to die. The death of a good shepherd of the physical sheep results in the death of the sheep. But the good shepherd doesn't risk his life. He lays down his life. We're going to see the great purpose and great intent in his words. The good shepherd doesn't hope not to die, but he tells us he comes expressly for the purpose of dying. His death does not result in the death of the sheep. His death results in the life of the sheep. See, we've been building out a list of what a good shepherd does for his sheep. You need to know this. How is God disposed towards you? If you are his, if sheep are souls, if sheep is us, how does Christ relate to us? What does he do for us? Knowing God is eternal life. Know this. Know what he promises to do for you, his sheep, his child. We started with six things from verses 3 and 4. We saw that the shepherd Owns the sheep, calls the sheep, knows the sheep, leads the sheep, feeds the sheep. And all of that implies and is only possible because the shepherd is with the sheep. That's number six. And then last week, we added a seventh shepherd sheep service. The shepherd saves the sheep from verse nine. Here's the question then. How? How does the shepherd save the sheep? Well, that we just read it. Eighth. Shepherd, sheep, service. Repeated five times, the shepherd dies for the sheep. Owns, calls, knows, feeds, leads, with, saves, dies. Christian, this is what Christ does for you. This is what Christ is always doing for you in all things. And it is this climactic final act that is the foundation uh, of all of it. Why? Remember, the death of a good physical shepherd means the death of the sheep. Why does the death of the spiritual good shepherd mean the life of the sheep? This is the question. Why did Christ die? You'd be surprised at how many are confused about this today. You'd be surprised at how many are expressly denying what Christ says about this today. Because it shouldn't be that complicated. Because Christ tells us. The text tells us. There's even a tiny, little, seemingly insignificant word in the text that tells us. Remember, grammar is good. You need grammar. The smallest words are often the biggest words. Prepositions are precious. It's that little three-letter word in verses 11 and 15. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Hupair. Looks like hyper. Hupair in the Greek. It's one of the most important words. In the Bible, who pair for means instead of it means in the place of it is a substitution word. It is a sacrifice word question. We, we talked about doors last week. Christ, the door. My sermons are you think my sermons are long now. You should see them before I take all the stuff out. So I had to delete. I delete this part of the sermon last week and I saved it for this week. But most of you entered this morning through the, the back doors there, the front doors, whatever you want to call them. Right, do you know why the doors are red? Right, do you know historically why church doors are red? Don't get me wrong. I'm a Tar Heel through and through. My You guys make fun of me sometimes. My whole wardrobe basically consists of light blue. It's all right. I was not sad when it was decided to go with the nice blue carpet in here. Um, but I don't think that we should change the red door. There are arguments about this, but traditionally it goes All the way back to the Exodus and the first Passover and the painting of the doorposts red with the blood of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, the substitute. God has said the firstborn of everyone is going to die unless, unless something dies in his place. Unless the lamb dies, and then to show that death, the door must then be painted with the blood of the substitute. Saying, there's already been death here. There has been a substitutionary, sacrificial death. Pass over this place. The door was red. And we've seen at the beginning of this book, John the Baptist cry out upon seeing Christ in 129. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we've just read Christ claim, I am the door. That's why church doors are red. The death of Christ is why. The blood of Christ is why. He says in verse 9 that we enter by Him. We enter through Him. Through His blood and death. And so historically, red church doors were a reminder that we enter in. We enter into this space. We enter into worship. We enter into the presence of God only. Through the blood of Christ. Have you ever considered the red door? Remember, the shepherd dies for the sheep because he knows the sheep. We think of this generally as, oh, he knows me so much, and that's so nice, it's so good to be known. But we talked about how that also then means he knows, Isaiah 53 6, that all we like sheep have gone astray. Remember, sheep is not a compliment. Sheep is not about how cuddly and cute we are. Sheep are dumb. Sheep are wayward. Sheep equals sin. The verse before, Isaiah 53, 5, talks about the sheep going astray in terms of transgressions and iniquities. Sin. Sheep equals sin. The good shepherd in knowing us, the bad sheep, knows our sin. The sin that separates. That sin that is death that sin that is cosmic treason, a crime. And if we are going to claim to be about justice, that includes being about the justice, the cosmic crime against the eternal and holy God deserves something must be done about our sin. The second half of Isaiah 53, 6 tells us what that something is. All we like sheep have gone astray. The mystery of mysteries. And the Lord has laid on him. On Christ, the iniquity of us all. That's what it means for the shepherd to die for the sheep. It means that he dies in the place of the sheep as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sheep. The sheep sin. The shepherd dies. The good shepherd of the sheep, who is the son of God, is also the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the sheep. The gospel is that man sins and God Dies. The sheep sin, the shepherd dies. That's the gospel. And that is where we see the infinite preciousness of Christ. It is here that we see His goodness and glory on full display. This is the same God of point number one. The same God of infinite transcendence and bigness. Here is that God come to take on sin and suffer and die. All so that we little sinful sheep can live Amazing grace. The good shepherd dies for the sheep. That is where you will find abundant life. That fact and that fact alone is where you will find your everything. Do you understand the death of the good shepherd? Do you know why Christ dies? Do you understand what you deserve? Do you understand what Christ does? Church, if only we could understand our sinfulness. Grace is needed that saves a wretch like me. Do you ever think of yourself that way? Contrary to all current opinion, you should. Because you are. Because I am. Remember point number one, how big that God is? Consider our sin as directly against that God. Not only infinitely big but infinitely good, we have treated him like dirt, like trash, like nothing. Our sin is an attempt to dethrone him, to ungod him, to kill him. There is nothing worse, and it's not close. Think of the worst crime of the last couple of years, and it's not close. If we could see our sin for what it is, and how much of that wicked wretchedness remains in our often cold and dark hearts... What that infinitely great sin against an infinitely good God deserves? Have you ever really felt, experienced the depths of the darkness within? Have you? Are you aware of that? Has God allowed you to see and experience what really is still in there? That's a foretaste of what hell would be. The saying of hell is other people. No, hell is ourselves, uh, by ourselves, separated from God. But have, you seen, have you experienced the infinite what would be the infinite eternal suffering, sadness, loneliness, loneliness and misery? Uh, that's what we do in our sin. That's what we deserve. That's what the offended God himself takes on himself. That's what the good shepherd suffers and dies for, that we might be forgiven. If we could see the depths of our sinfulness, we would better see the grace and kindness of what it is that the good shepherd is doing here. Do you really understand and appreciate that? Do you understand substitution? Christ dies for you. Not because you're wonderful, but because you're awful. And I'm the chief of sinners, because I'm awful. Amazing love, how can it be? He died for me who caused him pain. That's the grace. Your life is entirely wrapped up in what Christ claims here in verse 11. Do you understand it? Do you delight in it? Do you live in light of it? One of my favorite quotes, I use it every now and then, John Stott in The Cross of Christ. I think this is such a profound quote, but it's because the cross is so profound. And Stott writes this, The biblical gospel of atonement, that's what we're talking about here, atonement, Christ dying for us. The biblical gospel of atonement is of God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. Satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. Substitution. God puts himself where only man deserves to be, the cross. That's grace. Because man attempts to put himself where only God deserves to be, the throne. That's sin. Substitution is at the very heart of both of them. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's how you can find abundant life. Only in Christ. Only in the death of Christ that takes away the sin that is But there's one more important piece of the puzzle before we can move on. We said that dies was the climactic final act of the shepherd toward the sheep, but that's not quite true. Let's add a ninth. Look at verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There's a whole lot in there that we don't have time for next week. For this reason, first off, doesn't mean that the father didn't love the son and now that the son did this thing. And so now he loves him. No, uh, key to this will be next week's verse 30. I and the father are one. There is an essential unity In the Godhead. And thus in the purpose and plan of the Godhead. Verse 18, the father gives a charge to the son. But in 17 and 18, we see the son willingly and voluntarily take up the task. Joyfully, we read elsewhere. And his joy in taking up the most glorious task ever brings the father great joy. The father loves the son for his willing self-sacrifice to save the sheep. And remember... God is the ultimate being. He is the perfect person. That means he loves perfectly. That means he most loves that which is most deserving of love. We should seek to love that which the perfect person most loves. The Father loves the Son. Do you love the Son? But for now, I'm trying to get to the fact that the shepherd doesn't only lay down his life For the sheep. No one takes it from him. The cross was not an accident. It was not a tragedy. It was not the Jews or the Romans. Killing Jesus. It was Jesus laying down his life. For the sheep. It was the God of point one. Doing point two. But that's not all that he does. Twice also Jesus says. That he will take his life up again. Resurrection. Ninth thing. That the shepherd does for the sheep. The shepherd lives. For the sheep. Well, we know that all that he does, he does for the sheep. The whole of his life is for our salvation. Remember, the God of perfect righteousness requires perfect righteousness. He requires perfect obedience to his law. How's that going for you? Have you perfectly loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? You have not. I have not. You need the perfect shepherd to live for you. You need his perfect righteousness, his perfect law keeping. But, That's not really what we're talking about here. I guess you could say this ninth one is the shepherd lives again for the sheep or the shepherd rises for the sheep. The shepherd dies. The shepherd doesn't stay dead. He dies to rise. And it is in his rising, his resurrection life that we find life. Paul will even say in Romans 4.25 that Christ was raised for our justification. That will be important for next week. The resurrection proves that Christ actually accomplished and effected what he set out to do. The cross doesn't make people savable. The cross saves. He has made satisfaction for sin. Death could not hold him. We live because he lives. We live because everything that he does, he does for us. Look at verses 14 and 15. The second declaration. I am the good shepherd. This time, it's followed by, I know my own, and my own know me. Don't miss verse 15. This is beautiful. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Don't forget, in Scripture, this knowing, this gnosko, is not just knowing about. It's personal. It's intimate. It's affecting. It's loving. To know is to love. And we've just seen how beautifully and brilliantly, how comprehensively and how comfortingly Christ loves us. All that he does, from the owning to the ninth to the rising, all that he does, he does for the sheep. He loves us, and so he serves us, and he seeks our good, for that's what love is and does. And so we asked earlier at the beginning, where's the disconnect? Why do so few of us truly experience the abundant life that Christ came to bring? It could be, in part, because we tend to miss this. It could be that in our sinful selfishness, we tend to miss this. And we tend to fail to imitate our Lord in this fundamental fact is absolutely other-focused, good-of-others-seeking love. Point number three. The church of the good shepherd. I'll be brief. Look at verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. That's the church, the church of the Good Shepherd. In college, Melissa and I both for a time attended a Presbyterian church in Chapel Hill called the Church of the Good Shepherd. We didn't know each other. We didn't know we were there. I think we were there at the same time often, um, but we hadn't met yet. Um, I was actually saved in the plant of the Church of the Good Shepherd, Christ Community Church, uh, toward the end of college. Both were good churches. Both were churches of the Good Shepherd, as is Woodside Community Church, a church of the Good Shepherd. Why, though, is verse 16 about the church? Well, because it's not about aliens. Um, Some people try to argue. Some people have tried to argue that verse 16 is about the aliens. It's about the gospel going forth to the planets. And, you know, people do that. And just as absurd, verse 16, is not about universalism. It's not about other ways. Jesus has just said that he is the door, that he is the way. He cannot then be saying here that there are other ways that people from other religions will will still be saved through those religions apart from them coming to Christ, of course. It's not that complicated. Remember the sheepfold back in verse 1 is Judaism. The bad and false shepherds of Israel have failed. Christ the good shepherd has come to call out and save those who are his. The other sheepfold of verse 16 then is simply the Gentiles. It's the nations. And there is... One flock. there is the church. There is no distinction. We still kind of like to think there's distinctions. There is no distinction. Jews and Gentiles together, all saved by the grace of God through the death and resurrection of the one good shepherd. Next week, again, we're, we're, we're already driving towards, the, towards this, but it's the work of the good shepherd that creates the sheep. That's going to be basically the big idea next week. It is the work of God that creates sheep. The church. It's His initiative. It's His grace. God's grace creates God's people and thus God gets all the glory. It is all His gracious, glorious, sovereign work. And as Jonathan Edwards liked to say, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Sovereign grace is what I love to ascribe to God. So come back next week. It will be fun, hopefully edifying. The ultimate goal is for it to be God-glorifying. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We're going to see that next week. God's absolute glory revealed in his absolute grace. And that is supposed to do us absolute good. So next week, please come. The doctrines of the grace of the good shepherd. But for now, all I want you to see is that much of the glory of the good shepherd is wrapped up in how focused he is on us, the weak, helpless, sinful sheep. How he seeks and saves the lost. How he came not to be served, but to serve. The good shepherd seeks the good of the sheep. He came that we... He already had abundant life. He came that we may have abundant life. Maybe then, what we're missing as the good-by-grace sheep of the good shepherd, as those being conformed into the image of the good shepherd, maybe what we're missing is how little we seek the good of others. Maybe one of our fundamental disconnects is our failure to do the very thing that is at the heart of what he is doing in this text. What if the experience of the abundant life is bound up in imitating our shepherd and Lord Remember, we become what we behold. Is it all that surprising that when we behold self, we become selfish? Sinful self. So is it all that surprising then that when we seek the good of the self, that sinful self, that we actually become miserable? It's because of our living out of line with reality, with how we were created, we are being very much unlike the good shepherd. Are you intentionally seeking the good of others? honestly. Is it about you and what you want and good found in self? Or are you finding those things in the seeking of others? And I'm going to be honest, like, I'm not that excited about today, right? I'm preaching right now. I have a wonderful membership meeting. I'm excited at one. Then I'm preaching at the Indonesian church at two. We got to rush to North Shore, and I have to preach again. And then I got to change and get in the water and baptize people, and then get out and get unchanged and do something. And then Mike's preaching on the Lord. like, it's, just, it's gonna be like a 14 hour day. I am selfish and lazy and word up to me. I'd be, you know, I'd, I'd rather go watch the Mets because I'm a miserable sinner. Right? If I'm letting my heart. I'm still so prone to think that I find my good and my rest and my joy in my own time doing what I want. Guess what? It doesn't work. I know that it doesn't work, and yet I still seek to do it. You know how long today is, but you know how good it's going to be? For me, for my soul, and for my kids, and for my family, and, and for you all. It's good because it's doing what is being shown to us here in John 10. This is what the good shepherd does. He seeks the good of the sheep. Are you intentionally seeking the good of others? Is your life, your time, your attention devoted mainly to self, and the good of self, or God, and the glory of God, or God, excuse me, or God and the glory of God? through the good of god's people what if you're not experiencing the abundant life because you're living as if the abundant life is found in pursuing the good of your self this is one of the great paradoxes of the christian life seek self find sadness seek god through others find joy why is that it's because of jesus it's because this is how the God of all glory, the Good Shepherd, operates. This is what he has done for us, and he has made us like him in his image and his likeness. This is what he made us for. We actually find all that we're looking for, not in Mets, not in Netflix, not in exercise, not in having all seven nights to ourselves because we need to take it easy and be able to get through a whole show. But no, we find all of these things, the peace, the satisfaction, the contentment, the joy, and the life in him, in seeking him. And in seeking him in large part by serving those who are his. For this is the very thing that he has done for us. Look at our good and great shepherd. Look at how he dies for us. Look at all that he does for everything he does. In his earthly ministry he does for us. He has sought our eternal good. What if you would actually find joy in more and more seeking the good of others what if you're disappointed discontent depressed in part maybe because you continue to seek your own good above all things it's it's at least possible i commend to you here john chapter 10 and the other focus of the good shepherd i encourage you to give it a try how well, we gave out a little book in sunday school a few weeks ago titled uh, rediscover church what do you want to get out of church? How are you going to get out of church? What you need to get out of church? How can you play an important role and serve in this church? Listen to this short paragraph. I thought this is really helpful. This is what one of the pastors says to everyone that he does a membership interview with. This is what he says. He says, when I talk with new church members, I make a big promise. And so far, no one has ever returned to complain that I misled them. I promise that if they show up consistently and seek to care for others, they will get everything that they want out of the church. That could be spiritual growth, friendships, biblical knowledge, or practical help. They will get whatever they want from the church by fulfilling just these two simple tasks. He goes on. If you don't participate regularly, you don't get the formative experience of church. You don't grow in biblical knowledge, through the teaching, or in relational depth, through praying with others. And if you don't seek the good of others... You learn to judge the church for how it fails to meet your needs and how others fail to reach out to you. I have never seen people rediscover church and get what they want from the community unless they consistently show up and ask others how they can help. Remember, you are the body of Christ. That is so beautifully simple, yet profound and helpful. And how few people actually get this basic thing. Show up, Seek to love and serve others. Seek their good. That's excellent. We are not a perfect church. We are far from it. I am not a perfect pastor. I am far from it. But you could still find great joy in this imperfect church with its poor pastor if you would commit to participating and commit to seeking the good of others. That's it. It's that simple. Who are you pouring into? Who are you intentionally reaching out to and connecting with, checking up on, seeking to help become more like Jesus? Are you seeking to help anyone become more like Jesus, the good shepherd of your soul who so perfectly sought your good? And our entire lives, corporate and personal, would be changed were we each of us doing these two things. Christ is our only hope. And so my encouragement is for you to find abundant life in Him. My challenge is that you experience that abundant life in knowing Him and loving Him and knowing and loving His people. 1 John is very, very clear. If you do not love Christ's people, if you are not a part of Christ's people, you do not love Christ. These two things go together. Spurgeon says this. I loved this. I read this on Friday. To live entirely for the Lord is to live in deed. And yet, how often am I trying to live for something else and then I'm confused why I'm sad or not joyful? To live entirely for the Lord, to live indeed, because He is life itself. And thus, anything else, living for anything else, is not living at all. That's the Good Shepherd. That's His death. That is His church. And so this week, my encouragement to you is to consider Him To behold Him. We're going to do that in great detail next week. We're going to look at His grace. And by the grace of God, my prayer is that as we do that personally and corporately, we will become more and more like Him in His love for His people. And that we'll find great and abundant life with His people. Seeking the good of His people as we honor Him by doing that. The good shepherd gladly lays down his life for the sheep so that the sheep can gladly live for him. That's the abundant life. Let me close you with a word of prayer. Father, we ask now that you would help us. We ask that you would work on our hearts. We ask that you would show us Christ. Father, I do ask that you would show each and every one of us our sin. And the depths of that depravity that remains. But Father, then please do not leave us there. Please use that then to direct our attention to the only one who can help us and rescue us and save us. Use us then to direct us to the all-glorious Christ who came to took on that and to rescue us from that and to give us the abundant life that we did not deserve or pursue or choose. Father, we thank You for Your grace. Capture us with an understanding of just the goodness and all comprehensiveness of Your grace. By grace and grace alone, that's our everything. And Father, for even those of us who by Your grace have been saved from ourself and our sin. Father, we are still so prone to wander back into that. We are still so prone to live our lives first for us and to seek our good above all others. Father, please help us. Please help me. Father, convince us that our good is not found in ourself, but that our good and our abundant life is found in you. and It's found in being like you. And it's found among your people in seeking the good of those people. Um, Father, so how far I have to go in this um, area. Father, we have seen so clearly how much the Good Shepherd cares for the sheep, how well he knows the sheep and how much he loves the sheep. Father, help us, each and every one of us, care and know and love your people. Uh, Build this church, Lord, for your glory and and for our good. May this be a place where the gospel is central and the gospel is clear and the gospel is demonstrated in the great love uh, that we have um, for one another. Father, we're so thankful that you love us. We're so thankful that you are patient with us. We're so thankful for Jesus Christ. Show us Christ, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.